Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. My name is John Shaw, and I'm the director of the Institute. Today, we're bringing you a conversation from our archives that we had in July 2021 with Audra Wilson, who's president and CEO of the Chicago-based Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Although we recorded this conversation a few months ago, Wilson's work for racial and economic justice continues, and we enjoyed learning about her fascinating background. Here's a conversation. And today, we're really delighted to be joined by one of the dynamic leaders um, in the United States today, Audra Wilson, who is the CEO and president of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law based in Chicago. Audra has a wonderfully interesting background, has done many, many interesting things in the realm of politics and public affairs. Uh, she has, has an undergraduate degree from Bucknell, law degree from Valparaiso. Uh, her first job was working at the Shriver Center uh, as a, an attorney dealing with welfare issues. She went on to do some remarkable things, including uh, uh, helping launch Barack Obama in his 2004 Senate race in Illinois. I'd love to talk about that. She's worked at Northwestern Law School. Um, she's worked for Congresswoman Robin Kelly as her deputy chief of staff and uh, was the executive director of the Women of League Voters, then returned to the Shriver Center last year to serve as her president and CEO and joins us today from their offices in Chicago. So Audra, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, John. Great. Well, Audra, let's talk a little bit about your background. I, um, I, I've, I've seen some of your talks in which you say you're a, an Illinois a, a transplant. Um, I know your folks actually moved to the U.S. from Jamaica, as I understand it. So tell us a little bit about your early years and, and uh, growing up uh, in the U.S. Sure. So, yes, I am the, the child of immigrants. My parents actually came um, to the States, they were pretty young um, at a time when it was a little easier for them to be able to emigrate, um, but for the same reason as everybody else, you know, for more opportunities. Um, it's interesting because my, my brother was actually born in Jamaica, but came very young, and I was actually born in the U.S., um, but I have um, a lot of my family that still lives in the West Indies, and as typical with Jamaicans, we end up all over the world. So um, uh, being a former colony, there are many who are still in England. Um, all over the place. And many of them actually live, believe it or not, in Florida and New York. So as a, I'm an East Coast native, because that's where, you know, a lot of Jamaicans who are in the New York, New Jersey area. And then you went to undergrad at Bucknell and you studied, as I understand it, both international relations and Spanish. How did those kind of uh, dual majors come together? So I ended up, my undergraduate at Bucknell, I, I came from Princeton Junction, New Jersey, and it was a my high school. I was really awesome high school, and I met somebody there you know, giving one of those assemblies or presentations. He was a polyglot. He was flipping from language to language to language, and he worked for the UN. And I, I'll never forget that that presentation because I, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer for a long time, but listening to him and speaking languages, and I love languages anyway. I think if I had another life, I'd be a linguistics professor, but I was just so attracted to that, that from that presentation, I said that I wanted to work for the State Department, um, and I was taking French and Spanish anyway, and I said I wanted to learn as many languages as I could, and I just, I just wanted to imitate that. So when I got to Bucknell, I actually had chosen international relations, Spanish double major, but again, because I had been taking Spanish and French as a high school student, and I minored in French, and I had every intention of working for the State Department, but 
you know, as circumstances would have it, I ended up going down a different path. And that was just by virtue of opportunities that presented themselves and things that I learned more about once I was in law school. So notwithstanding having carved my own pathway before having spoken to anyone doing that particular work, I ended up doing something entirely different. Well, you, you went, as I said, to Valparaiso, and then your first job was working at the Shriver, or one of your first jobs working for at the Shriver Center. We'll talk more about the Shriver Center in a little bit, but tell us about like uh, your sort of kind of entree into the world of, of kind of public interest law. Was that just through some opportunities that sprang up as opposed to kind of a strategic plan or? I did. So I am, as a, a proud Gen Xer, I grew up watching shows like LA Law. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I, I'm watching this kind of family law, divorce, things like that. So when I was in high school, I said, that's what I'm going to do because of course it, it looked interesting and sexy. And that's of course, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had lawyers in my family who, by the way, were doing a little bit <laughs> different type of work legally, but um, that was my sort of attraction. Fortunately for me, though, um, as I was in law school and I did clinic for my first year, I, I well, not excuse me, I worked as a an, a legal intern with the Legal Assistance Foundation of the Metropolitan Chicago, and then the second year I was working in clinic and just having an entirely different experience working with individuals who did not normally have access to to quality representation and seeing the breadth of cases and the work um, that these attorneys were doing because there's so many issues that that folks with limited income are facing and how they interface with the law in so many different ways. And that quite frankly, was what sort of reoriented me to doing something a bit more kind of substantial, you know, or substantive in terms of my, my legal practice and, and realizing that I could be a voice for those who do not have a voice as it pertains to, to interacting with the law and, and, and courts. And so that's how I got interested in public interest law. And also being a public interest lawyer, um, anyone who, is listening and, and had an opportunity to, to do public interest work, you get thrown into the fire much quicker. You know, so I could have gone the firm route and I have a lot of friends of mine who I certainly don't begrudge them their experience. They have a great experience, but I felt like I got to do so many different things much faster than I would have. So I just really felt like I was getting my hands wet much faster. Um, it's difficult work, obviously. Um, and I didn't realize just how intimately involved with my, my clients I would be and, and, and feeling their kind of the pressures and their concerns because you'd be there to resolve one issue. I started off with doing unemployment insurance hearings because I was allowed to do that as a law student. But then after we'd successfully negotiate that, they'd come to me saying, well, I've got a problem with this and I have a problem with that and I can't get my food stamps. It was food stamps at the time and I can't get these other things. And that's when I started realizing just you know, how many problems that people are challenged with, especially when they're dealing with having low incomes. And that, I think, for me, cemented the, the path that I was going to take. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I think I'm going to stick with this for a while. Well, I can't resist asking about uh, the 2004 campaign with uh, State Senator Barack Obama. I mean, you know, obviously now it seems it was all foreordained, but he was a, you know, State senator faced a tough primary. Was far from certain that he was going to win the primary. Tell us how you look back on that that journey. I mean, from you know pre Boston, after Boston, pre primary, after primary. Tell us about that. So 
I would not have had the opportunity to work with who we used to call Barack, President Obama. But, you know, those of us in Illinois, especially close to him, just fondly call him Barack. But I wouldn't have had the chance to work with him had it not been for my experience at the Shriver Center. Many of the attorneys at the Shriver Center actually um, drafted a lot of his signature legislation when he was in the state Senate. So being a new attorney at the Shriver Center, that's how I got a chance to meet him. And he was certainly a very impressive state senator, but you know, I didn't know that much about him beyond just the work that we had done. Um, but I did, however, follow him when he ran for Congress um, because it was a very contentious race. And there were aspects of the race that I just didn't like the dynamics of it. And I said, you know, when I heard he was running for US Senate, I said, I'd love to be able to help you. Keep in mind, I had never ever worked on a, a campaign before, never. Um, but I figured he'd have minions of lawyers writing white papers and doing other things like that. So I said, hey, I'll volunteer. And you know, you know all my colleagues and you know my boss. Um, so I volunteered. Um, he actually, he was excited. He said, that's great. I'd love to have you. But then this is right in the beginning of the Iraq war. And he was speaking out about the Iraq war. So he went offline for a minute and I hadn't heard from him in weeks. So periodically I'd poke and send a message saying, hey, don't forget, don't forget, happy to help you volunteer or volunteer for you. He brought me to a restaurant somewhere on the west side of Chicago and he bought me a Coke, I'll never forget this. And he sits me down in this booth and he goes, okay, so here are the jobs that we have on my campaign. And I said, jobs? And so as the folklore goes, I'm probably the only person who said to this man, I already have a job. I wasn't asking you for a job. I just said, do you need some volunteers who are lawyers? I'm, you know, you know, all my lawyers, you know, all my colleagues, I just wanted to help. But he actually ended up offering me a job on the campaign. And he had already spoken to my then boss to, to tell him that he was going to offer me something. So they were already in cahoots. Um, and so when I went back to my boss and said, why did Barack offer me a job? And he said, yes, I know. <laughs> and so, you know, so they, um, so Shriver Center agreed to let me take an administrative leave of absence. I had been here for four years already. And so they let me take a year off. And I started as my title was deputy campaign manager for Obama for Illinois for the U.S. Senate race. Now, for those of you who worked in politics, you know, the titles are kind of are meaningless <laughs> because Deputy campaign manager can mean writing checks, sweeping floors, or creating public policy. I was doing all three, practically. So, you know, so that's that's how I started working for him. It was an amazing, amazing experience. I got to to work with a lot of these heavyweights in terms of just public policy and and campaign strategy, including including um, David Axelrod and uh, Pete Jane Greco and John Cooper and all these other folks, especially in Illinois, who just really had cut their teeth doing this sort of advocacy and, and campaign strategy as a neophyte. Um, so there's no better way for you to learn. Um, and I eventually became the deputy press and policy director. And that was my eventual title. And it, I tell people it's like starting school in the fourth grade. It's all the foundation that you would expect to have from those first three years, four years, including kindergarten, you don't. You have to just jump in there and the trajectory is very you know, steep. But fortunately for me, I'm a, I'm a pretty quick study. Um, and I had no choice, quite frankly. If I was going to do this, I had to learn quickly. I was fortunate, fortunate to be a delegate, though, an official delegate for the 2004 campaign or, or, or the DNC. Um, and so I, I went both as a staffer and as a delegate. And that was my first convention. And I have to tell people, 
you know, I got to see firsthand the red state, blue state, you know, the, the very famous now red state, blue state uh, speech, convention speech. And for those of us who were staffers, especially those of us who were on very early, I was the third person hired on the campaign. Um, we looked at each other and we had chills because when we saw the reaction of the crowd, and if you haven't been to a convention, it's very kind of orchestrated. They'll tell you when to raise the sign, you know, when to cheer, when to whatever. But this was very different. It was, it was organic. It just people were reacting to it. And everyone's cheering around us because we had a very star-studded political delegation that came with us to the convention. But we knew at that moment that he was destined for greatness. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I knew at that moment it was president, but I knew that the possibilities were limitless at this point. And he, he had only just won the primary. So, you know, so it was just a, a really amazing opportunity for us. And to know that I was a part of that was just something that, you know, you know, you can never take it away. Um, and just my affiliation with working on the campaign, even though I chose not to work on the Hill at that moment, because again, I was a practicing attorney. I wasn't going to start over as a, you know, a legislative correspondent necessarily, but we had a long talk, Barack and I, and he's just like, you have nothing to prove. You know, I will support you whatever you decide to do. And when I sort of felt like I had his blessing, I do. I knew that I missed my public interest roots and the advocacy, but I had this nice connection. So I actually chose to kind of stay in Illinois and continue doing my my public interest, you know, advocacy. However, I now had a political bend, so I ended up somehow becoming policy chair for a lot of candidates for statewide offices. So I kind of became that go-to person. But for a black woman to be sort of that behind the scenes person, a go-to person, especially for policy work. I mean, I recognize that that was, you know, quite a feat and quite an honor. So I was perfectly okay being the, the go-to one, you know, and, and the, I was okay with not having made the decision to go to DC because I felt like I could now do a lot more in the role that I now served kind of informally. This was not my day job, but, you know, so I, I have been the, the campaign advisor or the policy advisor to several different um, folks running for office, um, probably from the campaign up until, quite frankly, very recently. Actually, no, very, very recently, I've been asked again to do it. So I'm, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. Well, tell us about your time at Northwestern University, the law school, because I know you had some really important jobs there. Uh, how did that fit into your career uh, journey? Northwestern is interesting because I tell everybody, um, especially um, law students, you know, folks who are just getting out of school, I said, I am the embodiment of everything you can do with your law degree except for actually practice. And I did practice for a minute too, but um, every opportunity I've had has been as a consequence of what I was doing before. Doors opened up and Northwestern was no different um, because I was going back into public policy and um, just I... Interestingly, I was speaking at a conference and someone who was at Northwestern in a position that was a former director of diversity, education and outreach um, had reached out to me about this particular position, which was a what I thought at the time was a complete deviation from anything that I had done. Um, but I said, well, you know, let me check this out. Let me look into it. Um, and it was very interesting because it was an opportunity for me to be able to work as an, at a director level to get as many you know, law students of color into law school um, and help them to navigate their way through law school and support them. But it also gave me the opportunity to still teach because I was still 
you know, staying close to my roots in my public interest work, and specifically with with um, SNAP and food security issues and public benefits. So I also had the opportunity to be able to teach an introduction to poverty law class, which is a history of social welfare programs and how our attitudes towards the poor affect contemporary social welfare policy. So when I had this opportunity to be the director of diversity and still be an and be an adjunct, then I said, well, this is kind of works out well. So I kind of took this slight deviation, um, but it ended up being something that was of a measurable benefit to me in my career. Um, because now I'm kind of in this navigating this world of diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I started several programs actually while I was at Northwestern because I had a lot of leeway to be able to do that. Um, and programs that still exist today, it felt great to be able to start to help build that pipeline of having more students of color and law students of color because I thought it was extraordinarily important. And I realized I, I was committed to this because I actually had that pipeline. I grew up in New Jersey. I had that pipeline uh, and that opportunity, even though I had lawyers in my family, but I was also part of a, one of those explorer type programs specifically for students of color. And that was back in you know the late 80s. So um, just to be a part of that was a great thing and to know that I could build and to do more. And so I'm, I'm really proud of the legacy that I left with that. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad that I did that because those skills, especially in DEI work, have actually helped me when I move back into kind of government and public policy because I've been able to apply those in subsequent positions and even right now in my current position back at the Shriver Center. Well, I want to talk about the Shriver Center in a second, but I thought first it might be helpful for our, our listeners to just maybe understand the, the really the challenge of poverty in America better because you know, there's a lot of different measures and a lot of numbers are thrown out and it has kind of a, an enduring effect. And so tell us, as you see it, what is the most kind of useful way for Americans to view our country's poverty problem or challenge? I think the hardest thing for a lot of people to, to grasp as it pertains to poverty in America is that is it, it is in such stark contrast to our image of this nation that is so prosperous. We are one of the wealthiest nations you know, in, in the world. We are a nation of great opportunity. We are that, that, that fabled land that people can come with practically the shirts on their back and that's about it to be able to, to build themselves up and acquire wealth and be successful. I mean, that is, that's American folklore. And it's, it's, it's not entirely fiction because obviously there's many examples of that, but that's the image that we want to put forth. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are many people who are living in poverty in the United States. It transcends race and ethnicity. Um, there is poverty in this country. And what's even worse about it is that sometimes we are in denial about the depths of poverty in this country. It is in such stark contrast to the fable that we put forward, you know, the, the, the folklore about just uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, and you know, being able to make it here. Um, and what's even more insidious about American poverty is that as it pertains to certain groups and particularly groups of color, there are barriers, there are actual systemic barriers that are in place to prevent people to, from being able to acquire wealth. And if you don't have the ability to be able to acquire wealth, then you don't have the ability to be able to transfer that wealth. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a dual layer here. There is poverty in America. And more importantly, or even worse, if you are a poor person of color, particularly an African-American, 
then there was historic barriers to your ability to acquire wealth and, and subsequently transfer that wealth. And we are still feeling the vestiges of that contemporarily. And so that's why for me, being here and talking about poverty and even with our tagline for racial economic justice, it's hard to see, but that's the, the tagline of the Shriver Center right now, though we are a historically anti-poverty organization, we realized more recently, even though we've been talking about, how, about it behind closed doors, that we had to more formally incorporate um, notions of race when it came to economic justice, because you cannot extricate race from poverty when, um, or, or race from the, the discussion of economic justice in this country because of our origins, because of our history. So that's what I try to kind of lead with when I talk to people about poverty in America and why it is so particularly insidious, um, you know, when we're looking at our own country and our history. I mean, to put some parameters around it, I was looking at a study by the Urban Institute, which said, which estimated the poverty rate in the United States is something like 14 percent, which um, is basically one in seven Americans. And they broke it out. They said, you know, 18 percent for African-Americans, 22 percent for Hispanics, less than 10 percent for whites. And the overall number, I know it's disputed by exactly how you measure it, but some have, I think, you at one in a talk talk said it was something like 60, 65 million people are could be considered um, in poverty. Um, but, but I want to read a couple sentences of a gentleman who, who's 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 written quite a bit. I'm sure you've heard of Mark Rank, uh, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called Poorly Understood: What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. I want to read a couple sentences because it tracks a lot of the things I've heard you say. So Rank says, within the United States, we tend to view poverty as an issue of them rather than us. Those in poverty are seen as strangers to mainstream America, people of color, falling outside acceptable behavior, and as such to be scorned and stigmatized. Yet it turns out the vast majority of Americans will experience at least one year below the poverty line. Poverty touches all races, all regions of the country, and all age groups. Very few of us are immune from the reach of poverty at some point. This understanding can shift our perceptions of the poor. Yeah. Develop, uh, and I know you, you have a wonderful talk about the whole kind of bootstraps narrative in which we tend to sort of, as- it's been associated, you know, p- poor people with, you know, poor character or not working hard enough. So expand on those themes as you will. Sure. So what he describes is, a thousand percent correct. That is, and it's funny because in, in my conversations and when I'm teaching class, I, I call it not as eloquent as he does, but sort of the we, they dichotomy. You know, there's us and it's them, you know, and it's the them because they're so different from us. It is poor decisions, uh, not even circumstances. It has to be some sort of moral failing or poor decisions. But that notion though, that there is a something that they are doing, that has this, that's nothing new. And that we they dichotomy has been in place for 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 generations, um, and it has underscored a lot of our treatment towards poor people. So think even in terms of um, those who qualify to be able to, to get public benefits. We make categories of people who are aged. Uh, it was the aged, the blind, disabled. We basically said here are some categories that we'll carve out for people that we say because of certain circumstances, we can excuse their inability to be able to take care of themselves. But everybody else, you know, you're on your own. Um, But the truth of the matter is, it does not take into consideration a 
whole host of other circumstances that might cause people to be living in poverty. And we know in America that poverty, again, is very much tied to our, our history of racial subjugation. So, so I, I understand it completely. When we think about poverty in America, um, I would tell my law students this all the time. People will sort of coalesce around um, a particular cause. If it's something that's impacting women disproportionately, then you'll see women of a certain group or whomever coalescing to advocate you know, for, against something or, or in favor of something. If it's hitting some other discrete sort of group, you'll see the group coalesce around whatever that, that unites them and then they will advocate for something. But people don't want to coalesce around being poor you know, about not having a lot of money. Although the irony of that is that the ability to be able to, to, to influence or wield influence to say that, hey, irrespective of our, our differences, you know, in terms of race or gender or um, national origin, all of us are struggling in this moment due to circumstances possibly beyond our control. What a formidable force we would be if we were to coalesce around that and make demands of our elected officials, irrespective of, of, of political affiliation, to say that, no, your citizens should not have to live this way. Your citizens, citizens should not have to endure certain things. You know, let's coalesce and be that way. But we never do that. <laughs> we don't coalesce around being poor. For us, it's like a scarlet letter. And we, we don't want it to, 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 to be part of that. So you'll read a lot of different books. I remember um, early on, I, I would have my students read um, Nickel and Dime by Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, you'd have people, especially white poor people who would almost be proud of the fact like, I'm living hand to mouth. I, I don't have health insurance. I don't have this, I don't have that, but I'm not getting any welfare. <laughs> and they were proud of the fact that they weren't you know, going to an aid office and, and collecting a check, you know, because that's, again, unfortunately, the very negative tropes that we have out there. And I would read this and thinking to myself, so let me get this straight. So you're struggling, you're living hand to mouth, you have no health insurance, you, you're living check to check, you are just moments away from just being on the brink of just everything terrible. But you think this is a, a positive thing that you're not availing yourselves of resources that would enable you to get on firmer footing and maneuver yourself into a better position. And that, unfortunately, is part of our American psyche and our attitude towards even availing yourself of these public benefits. And you see that same sort of rhetoric. It, it has persisted for, for generations. It's persisted for decades, even as it pertains to the stimulus checks when our economy was almost decimated by the global pandemic, when businesses were, were closing, people were laid off in droves and the government was looking to do a stimulus, there were concerns or fears that if we give checks for people who, but for the, the pandemic would have been working, this might incentivize them to stay home. You know, they may not want to work again if we're, if we're getting checks. Even those, those very same checks were turned right back around and put back into the economy. But that was that, it was that mentality saying that somehow people are getting something for nothing. We don't want to incentivize this sort of behavior. Every trope that, was in, that has been in place for, for, for decades was in place even as it pertained to the decision to, as to whether or not to have a stimulus check, how much should the stimulus be, what is the cutoff for the stimulus, that sort of thing. So it is, it is so persistent. And that's one of the things that I do, not only in my role as a, 
the president of the Shriver Center, but as our organization, we are constantly trying to fight against that narrative to let people know that it is destructive and it is very misleading. And there are many other barriers institutionally and systemically we need to be looking to dismantle as opposed to still trying to, to berate the individual for the condition in which he or she finds themselves. Well, let's talk about the Shriver Center um, in specific terms. Um, and, and let's start out maybe by talking about Sergeant Shriver, who, uh, uh, you know, in his obituary, I was just looking at it the other night at the New York Times, the first sentence was an architect of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. I understood from a speech you made that you had a chance to meet him at one point in your life. Tell us about, you know, Sergeant Shriver, the man, and maybe just the, your, your chance to meet with him. Well, Sarge is an amazing attorney, and yes, you know, he was the uh, sort of a, a key figure in this war, in Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, and the reason why we have what he had envisioned as this legal services for the poor. So this national organization for the, for the poor, um, or a national law firm for the poor, um, and that's how we, we grew. But I had a chance to meet him actually when the Shriver Center, um, we were the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services, that was our original name. And when we were renamed and um, uh, after the National Center on Poverty Law, we had a few name changes. We were going to take on his name um, because we are his, his descendant, this is the legacy um, that he put forth. Uh, I got a chance to, to go to California for the renaming and to meet him. And he was just the warmest, just most charismatic, friendliest, but more importantly, the most passionate about this work and why it was so important. And this was his life's mission um, and recognizing why it is so important for individuals to be able to have access to quality representation. And this was his, vi his vision to be able to do it. So it was really an honor because that was when I was at Shriver when I first came out of law school and to have a chance to be able to meet him and to just feel so, um, encouraged and, and enthused by his, his enthusiasm. Um, and I, that really carried me a lot in the work that I was doing. And now I have a chance to be able to carry on that legacy. The organization has, has grown exponentially since its origins in 1967. Um, and there was a time right in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, when I was from, from being a legal intern to eventually um, graduating from law school in the late 90s, um, a lot of legal service organizations were under fire. Um, um, it had been highly politicized. The, the, the nature of the work that we were doing as a legal service organization was being threatened. You know, certain types of advocacy we could no longer do or else we would be zero granted. We would not get any sort of funds from the legal service corporation. And so we were at this, this pivotal point where if we want to continue the work that we had been doing since 1967, including running our, our clearinghouse journal, our national journal, um, how would we be able to do so if we didn't have, if we didn't have um, that sort of funding? So um, a huge decision was made by us to actually merge with the um, attorneys who had left another legal service organization, the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, and essentially do it on our own because we were not gonna compromise, especially like class action litigation. That had been a huge tool for us and to imagine that that was no longer a tool in our arsenal to be able to help the poor. So there was a, a, a conscientious decision made that we were gonna go alone. And it was a little rough for a minute for a couple of years where things were a little bit shaky, but we were fortunate to be able to, 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 to survive that. 
and to move forward without having to be reliant upon um, those sorts of funds. Not every other legal service organization that were being funded by LSC funds was as successful as we were in being able to survive those, those cuts and those hits, um, but we were. And so now having this new incarnation of us as an organization, we got the name of the Shriver Center bestowed upon us by Sarge himself. Um, and that just opened up a whole new chapter in terms of the advocacy. And now we could continue to fulfill his legacy without being in fear of, of having a compromise because of what we could or could not do because of those restrictions. I want to read a couple sentences from your mission statement and have you maybe uh, develop that. You say, you know, our mission, the, the, the Shriver Center on Poverty Law provides national leadership in advancing laws and policies that secure justice to improve the lives and opportunities of people living in poverty. Our vision is a nation free from poverty with justice, equality, and opportunity for all. How does your work, uh, how is it animated by that, that mission? Well, it's a very ambitious mission, <laughs> but we do do it in, in multiple ways. Um, so one of them I just mentioned has been our ability to litigate. Um, and we've had uh, a great success with litigation, especially impact litigation um, for, for impacted families, for those who are living in poverty. We've been able to do it by the creation of public policy and, and, and legislative advocacy. So we have very intimate relations um, with our, um, our lawmakers, both at the state level and, and increasingly so at the federal level. Um, and so we've had great success with, with effectuating public policy through, through litigation. Um, we also do so through our training networks as well. Um, and that was actually a newer thing that came to Shriver, well, newer for me, not new for the organization now. But to be able to work with advocates across the country to actually train them, um, and not just in sort of the way that we've had our successes, but to also begin to filter their work through this equity lens, um, which is a very specific type of approach um, in order for them to do their work and be more effective advocates for the clients that they're serving. We were able to, pr to provide that and we've been doing that almost now for a decade. And we also developed um, a multi-state network um, with you know, over uh, 32 states um, and so we have similarly situated organizations that are doing many of the same type of public policy work that we're doing in advocacy, including um, organizations that do multi-issue advocacy as Shriver does. Um, but now we could do so in a way that we were creating this network. We are a peer network. We come together and we share our best practices. We share our strategies. We ask each other questions and with the eventual goal of being able to coordinate those efforts to effectuate policy on a much broader uh, level. And that's really important because a lot of the successes that we've had in, in moving the needle forward in, in helping people living in poverty stem from the ground. They're coming, they're not you know, trickling down from the feds, they're actually bubbling up from the states. And when we're seeing those successes that are working state by state, and we're now able to elevate those to a national level or, or, or you know, now be able to, to reach out to our federal advocates to say, hey, this is what needs to happen. Um, and ubiquitously, then we're able to do that through our work and our networks. So the organization has grown exponentially and we're doing these things on these multiple fronts. So at that, that, that Illinois-based level, that, that statewide level, and at the federal level. I wanna read another statement and it connects to something you talked about earlier. You say, uh, we forcefully address the most salient feature of poverty in America, race. Advancing racial equity 
is essential to promoting justice. Expand on that. And also maybe if you could talk a little bit about your Racial Justice Institute and how that fits specifically into that overarching goal. Certainly. This goes back to something I said right from the very beginning. And that is, if you're analyzing poverty um, in the US, you know, and, you're, and you, we are an anti-poverty organization, you have to go to the roots of, of poverty in, in this country. And we know that as it pertains to, to people of color, there are those systemic barriers. This is a consequence of our, our, our history. I mean, from redlining, um, you know, in, in housing to all sorts of other barriers where the ability to be able to acquire wealth has been impeded simply because of the color of one's skin, we realize that we can't talk about effectuating policies, broad-based policies to lift people out of poverty if at the same time we are not addressing the very barriers that were put in place to keep them from being able to acquire wealth in the first place. So that is why we cannot have conversations without about alleviating poverty without addressing race. And race is an integral part of achieving economic justice. Now, what this does obviously is it, 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 it changes the, 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 excuse me, I can't speak, the dynamic of our conversations. Um, but what we like to think of it as doing as really illuminating how we're gonna be able to have these broad-based solutions that are gonna be, that they can stick and not sort of piecemeal solutions that are helping certain communities, but still aren't getting to the roots of why poverty is so intransigent in the United States. Now, our Racial Justice Institute, um, again, being part of our training arm, has allowed us to be able to, to apply these kind of anti-racism, racial equity principles in our work um, and, and for all advocates. Now, most people who avail themselves of our RJI, as we call it, Racial Justice Institute training, are lawyers, but there are many folks who are also just, just advocates who are working in, in underserved communities. And so through this, they are actually getting very specific principles of anti-racism and, 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 and racial equity that they learn how to apply in their work. Um, they are able to look at now the work that they're doing as an organization and adapt themselves accordingly to be the most effective um, advocates as possible, recognizing that there are certain things or certain approaches we have to use that take into consideration issues of race equity. And so they go through a seven month cohort um, with a group of advocates from all around the country. And that's by design, because again, it's that sharing, it's the best practices, it's what's worked where you are, how, what has your approach been? But we more formalize this and then we teach them specific principles and, and give them a lot of ammunition basically to be able to now be the best advocates they can. We've had well over 300 people who graduated from the, the Racial Justice Institute. And go figure, though we've, we've had our class is growing year by year. Last year, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the spate of, of violence against black bodies uh, and this period of racial reckoning or yet another period of racial reckoning in which we found ourselves, the demands for the training that we do grew exponentially. Um, so many more advocates started saying, we need to just reevaluate the way that we do our work. Are we being as effective as possible in our advocacy? You know are we applying these anti-racist principles in our work? And just looking at themselves more critically. Last year was a period of introspection for a lot of organizations, including Shriver. And for these organizations that said, we need to probably retool the way that we do our work, they came to us for that training. So we've had this, this unexpected, wonderful benefit of now people really demanding this, this kind of anti-racism, you know, race, kind of racial equity, 
principles or, or um, that they are learning so that they'll be able to apply in their work. And that's what RJI does. And it does amazingly well. Well, let's talk for a couple of minutes about like this, the current moment we're in. Um, you know, as you've talked eloquently about how COVID has exposed just the, some of the racial unfairnesses and systemic problems um, in, in a really profound way, um, that's been huge. Obviously, we have a new administration that for the last six months has been pushing, you know, sweeping emergency legislation that has also had some important components. I know many of which you think should be made permanent rather than temporary. So where, where are we right now? I mean, in terms of, of, of how uh, we've emerged through COVID and how these, these rescue packages are, are perhaps creating some new policies that might address some of these problems. I would tell anyone who is listening to us right now, um, something that I would love for you to carry from this conversation. As it pertains to the advocacy, um, to help lift people out of poverty. Remind people that in our realm, in our space, we never want to go back to normal. I don't, that's one place where I sort of um, informally banished the word normal from our vocabulary because there was nothing normal about individuals who we lauded as these essential workers, these the folks who are the background bone of, of the, the US, the people who allowed us myself included, to be able to work from home, to be able to get groceries without having to leave my house, who were still picking up the garbage and cleaning buildings and taking care of all the things because life still went on while the vast majority of us were still at home. These individuals that we call essential were always the people who were living in the shadows. These were folks who, before the Amer uh, Affordable Care Act, had oftentimes had no quality health insurance, had no access to quality health insurance. Um, they had no paid sick leave, okay? They had very limited time off. They had no uh, ability to be able to pay for childcare because they didn't have those sorts of subsidies. They were struggling just to be able to get into the office to be able to work, into the office, but to wherever their, their workplaces were to be able to work. And they did not have the benefits that many of us are fortunate to be able to have that allow us to be able to work and to take the time off if we're sick. So I always found it very distasteful when we talk about you know, praising our essential workers. I'm like, well, if they were so essential, and by the way, they were essential prior to COVID, then what are we going to do to actually show that we recognize, you know, that they were in dangerous situations, that they were in close proximity, that they didn't have the, the personal protective equipment um, to keep them safe from the virus. Um, and yet they were forced to be out there and working. Now is an opportunity that, that we've exposed just the challenges that they've had as low wage workers. Now is an opportunity for us to really move that needle forward, to make sure that they're never in peril as they were, and as and many of them continue to be, quite frankly, um, um, as they were during COVID. And so that's why I say we have to move away from wanting things to be normal. This is a unique opportunity, but a very limited opportunity to move the needle forward. So the provisions that came through the American Rescue Plan, many of which um, I have advocated and not just me, many advocates across the country have pushed to make these permanent. These will be game changers in terms of not only lifting people out of poverty, but making sure that they're remaining safe. Um, so expanding the child tax credit is gonna be a huge thing to lift children out of poverty. Um, you know, states and municipalities are pushing hard to make sure that they have um, paid sick time. 
um, which we know is, is a public health issue as well, because we certainly don't want people who are sick to be going to work. And we certainly don't want sick people to go back and infect their families. Um, we know that just being able to give some basic income supports can be of a measurable help to families to be able to, for families and then for workers to be able to stay employed. We know that things like the guaranteed income, which is a, a pilot that has been implemented across the country, and to, to, to guarantee at least, let's say, a minimum of $500 for families, we study after study has shown that people are investing this wisely. They're investing this in ways to, to help them be able to go back to work, and they're using it, you know, it most prudently. And so, so many different examples that we've seen now as a consequence of the pandemic and how people have adapted that we can put in place to be able to help individuals be able to support themselves and support their families. Now, what you're also seeing when you hear about people not wanting to, to return to work, um, and you know, we pounce all over that saying, remember, the very people that aren't wanting to return to work are some of the very same people, again, who are living in the shadows, who are toiling at you know, uh, a federal minimum wage that hasn't moved in, you know, in decades. Um, individuals who did not have the benefit of these sort of protections and did not have the paid time off. And, you know, these are individuals who quite frankly are using this moment to let their voices be heard and use this as leverage saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to subject myself to these same conditions that may have gotten people around me sick, my family sick, endangered me, and, uh, and I still could barely uh, make enough money to, to, to feed my family. So, so this is another moment for them too, to use this moment as leverage to, to move things forward and to demand better conditions for themselves. But the window is going to shrink and it, it has already begun to shrink. So that's why as advocates, we need to move quickly. And that's why the narrative still has to be as such to say that we cannot go back to normal because normal was never good enough for the vast majority of Americans who are living at or below or slightly above poverty. I, I saw you in one of your talks say that, you know, we, we need to be very realistic as we approach this problem, but also very hopeful and optimistic. I mean, that, that is sort of a force multiplier, I guess that's a cliche, but so what is your most hopeful uh, scenario for how we can build off of this experience to move forward? So my host, my most Hopeful scenario, similar to what I had just mentioned, that is making a lot of these very generous and very necessary provisions permanent. So that in our American Rescue Plan, I think that's going to be a very, very important first step. I think the really having a, a meaningful conversation about um, minimum wage uh, and guaranteed income is going to be a, another a very important step moving forward and recognizing that we can't allow people to be living hand to mouth as they have been. And we, it, it is not a, a, a tenable situation for someone to be working 40 hours a week and still not able to support themselves or their families because these have residual impacts. It's not even just about the individual. This is about the individual in, in the communities in which they live. Um, th this has impacts on our children. I mean, there are many residual impacts for people who are living hand to mouth. But we have a unique opportunity now to be able to move the needle forward and to be able to make these, these, these provisions. And they will have a very positive benefit on our economy as well. So I, I, I really enjoy the conversations that we're having right now. Um, and I'm optimistic about them. But I am cautiously optimistic because I do recognize that there are some countervailing forces or people who just 
want to sort of shut the door on this very dark chapter that we've had over the last year and a half. Um, but I don't want these individuals to get caught in them. I want the fact that we've now seen these individuals and, and, and at least for the time being have this newfound appreciation for what they did and what they allowed us to do in terms of being able to stay home and recognizing that they too want to be able to feed themselves, feed their families, take care of themselves, and just be in an environment where they have the sort of protections and benefits that many of us enjoy who aren't working at minimum wage. Well, Sergeant Shriver's brother-in-law, John F. Kennedy, famously in, I think, 1962, 63, um, fell on a book called The Other uh, America by Michael Harrington, which talked about poverty in the United States. And apparently it was a very transformative book for him and, you know, helped, you know, trigger a movement that LBJ picked up. Is there something, if President Biden were looking to read a book on, on poverty and race and the connection of these or, or an article or something? What, what, what should he be reading? What should he be hearing? Well, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, I'm going to quote one that I'm actually reading right now. And I'm reading it really slowly because I have my highlighter and my pencil on almost every single page. So I, I, I'm not getting through this book as quickly as I, I would have liked, but that's okay. It is by Heather McGee and it's called The Sum of Us. And it's essentially, the, I had to think the tagline, but it's the cost of American racism, basically. And that's not the exact title, but the, the main title is the sum, S-U-M of us. And essentially Heather McGee, who was formerly the head of Color of Change or the, the, um, the, the president of the board of the Color of Change, who um, is also an attorney and has been working in, in this space, talks about just not only how virulent racism has been, but how there's actually a, um, a demonstrable economic impact. So the policies that we've put in place that I've mentioned over and over um, that have been impediments and barriers for people of color and specifically black people from acquiring wealth have actually had the, the impact of pulling everybody down. And, and so, and, and Dr. Ibram Kendi also talks about this, you know, how to be an anti-racist. And we, I had a conversation with him as part of our, um, our, we had a, a webinar, our, our first uh, gala, virtual gala with um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and, and Dr. Ibram Kendi. And he and Nicole talked specifically about the price of American racism. And the fact that literally, if we're looking in comparison to other countries, similarly situated countries with the, the 25, the countries with the highest GDP, that the reason why we are so low is because ironically of those racist policies. So, we have put things in place that whether it was with in the talk that I had given about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, I talked a lot about the homestead act. And this is part of when America was forming as a country, a new country, obviously, this where we had had already been discovered. But the with this newer incarnation of America, we talked about manifest destiny and wanting to expand out west. And what allowed families to expand out west was a homestead act. And we had encouraged people to have, you know, we gave them parcels of land. And as long as you worked on the land, you improved it, you lived in it for five years, you could now have this land for free. It was now yours. So that was what allowed America to be able to expand westward. But that policy did not apply to non-white people. There were subsequent homestead acts um, that were that could be applied to non-white people, but even in in its application, in a racist application, very few black families, for example, were able to avail themselves of that. 
Now, why is that so significant? And we're talking about the mid 1800s, because there is about 20% of Americans that can attribute some of their familial wealth to the Homestead Act. So this is familial wealth that has been passed down from generation to generation, 20%. Um, but yet you have entire categories of individuals who were not allowed to avail themselves of that very same government benefit. There have been many investments that we have been making into our population so long as it was white. But when more non-white people try to avail themselves of that, the door shut or more sorts of um, requirements were put on there so they really couldn't take advantage of that. On top of having provisions like racial redlining, you know, actually, and, and, and blockbusting and other sorts of tactics to keep people out of certain neighborhoods, putting extraordinarily high fees and fines on communities and, and, and just, it, 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 the list goes on and on. And that's the thing that, you know, people have to understand it, what keeps us all down as a country, even the institution of slavery, and, and actually Heather McGee talks about this in this book, that she mentions there was a, um, interestingly, a white supremacist at the time who lived in the South, who talked about why slavery was not beneficial to white people. Because even for slave owners, these were land-owning wealthy white people. These weren't for, for poor whites. So for those who had come to, to the Americas and, 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 and developed institution of slavery, it was, it was wealthy white owners that were availing themselves of the, the, the institution of slavery, not non-wealthy white owners, or non-wealthy non whites. So even there, you were starting to create this dichotomy. Um, and so when there was growth in the North and progress in the North, Southerners who did not own land found themselves, again, academically and, and, and any other resource behind, which you still see the remnants of that today when we're looking at educational patterns and, and wealth, even across the board, you know, across racial lines. That comes from racism. And so that's why, you know, I'm reading this and I'm just like, you know, I've known this, but just to have it sort of put together like that, that there is a cost to every single American white or non-white to American racism. And the people were to think of it more in terms of that and saying, why should I care? You know, why don't I just worry about my little piece? To think that we're all being brought down by that. So that's why it behooves everybody to dismantle, you know, these systems that's, and, and the remnants of these systems, the vestiges of these systems, and to really attack them at their core, um, to lift all of us up. And that's that proverbial, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. But in this situation, it really can. But that requires a lot of very difficult conversations. It requires an acknowledgement that, you know, unfortunately in this climate, a lot of people don't want to make. Um, it requires them to acknowledge the fact that yes, we've been the beneficiaries of a system um, that we did not inherit, but you know, we are the economic beneficiaries. But in order for us to really even to, to go even higher, we have to acknowledge that there is racism in our roots and we have to go to the core to be able to dismantle that. So it's the book that I would recommend. Um, I'd recommend to everybody else to read that. It is just, it is engrossing and it's um, disturbing, but I'm thinking that it might help to remove this sort of personal attachment to this and feeling like I had no part of this. I didn't build these institutions. And I tell people, well, listen, all of us are the beneficiaries of things that we, we had no part of its creation. I had nothing to do with a trillion dollar deficit <laughs> when I was born, but that's what I inherited. We've all inherited things that you know we weren't a part of, but we still need to be a part of that solution. Well, Audra, as we wind down, I mean, you're obviously in difficult, challenging work, hard issues, hard conversations. How do you 
relax? How do you unwind? How do you decompress? I see Dr. Spock looking over his shoulder, yes. your shoulder. So I'm <laughs> suspect, I suspect he's providing some inspiration, but, but talk about that. Yes. I was, I was saying right before we started that, that I am an unabashed Trekkie. <laughs> so yes. And I, yeah, I'm looking, I'm, I'm behind on my discovery and I'm looking forward to my next season of Picard. And, and I watched all the, including the original, because I am I actually have seen all 80 episodes and I can quote trivia and I, I'm a big nerd like that. Um, but yeah, I I also, I play piano and that has been, my music has been very helpful just to help me channel my energy when I'm feeling anxiety or stress and it, it makes me happy. Um, and I even perform, so that's been great. And um, I have acquired in my middle age a new sport. So now I've become a... a tennis player and I channel my inner Serena um, <laughs> exactly play like her but in my mind I do <laughs> so um, I started playing tennis a few years ago and I love it and I'm actually on a team and you know I derive some pleasure from that but I'm also a mom and so I, I have a, a 12 year old uh, daughter who and she and I go on our exciting adventures whenever we can and um, exploring museums and doing fun stuff. And so she, she, she keeps me active and engaged as well. So that's how I try to mix it up a little bit. I have to mention what we had a conversation a couple months ago uh, with Admiral Michelle Howard, who was the highest ranking African-American in the history of the Navy, highest ranking uh, woman in the history of the Navy. And she mentioned that she's also a Trekkie, that she, uh, <laughs> that was this, the, the show her mom watched her. And she even recounted a story that apparently Martin Luther King um, had become very uh, caught up in the show and also Ahura that became sort of this, a role model for an awful lot of young African-American women and actually young people. Um, he convinced her so, not to quit the show. She was right. concerned about the representation and, you know, am I just a token? Am I whatever? And he was the one to convince her of why it was so significant that she'd be on that show. And for those who are wondering, I mean, the, the show came on before I was born, you know, the original Star Trek. And you have to look at it in its context. I mean, we look at it now and people are like, oh, that's so cheesy. I'm like, you need to understand the context in which this was. This was a show that talked about war. It talked about Cold War. It talked about racism. And you could do all of this under this umbrella of, you know, being this is sci-fi and things that are happening extraterrestrially, but they were social commentaries. And so it was so significant that she was in the show to have Asian representation, to have African-American representation, to have women in roles of authority. It was groundbreaking um, before I think many people even appreciated just how important the show is. And that's why it's so significant to me, the original, in addition to all the fun, you know, different derivatives of it. Sounds great. Well, Audra, we, we are really grateful for the time you've spent with us, and we would love to uh, induce you to come to Carbondale at some point when, when your schedule okay. allows, and uh, uh, I'm not sure we can beam you down from <laughs> Chicago, but- I'll just drive, I'll drive. That's right, or Amtrak or something, but no, we'd love to have you meet with students and people in the community here and just talk about some of these really powerful and important um, challenges that many of us don't, you know, we sort of know that they're there, but don't pay as much attention to as we should. So we'd love to get you to campus and, and talk about some of the work of the Shriver Center. I would be honored. It would be wonderful to do so. And yes, I'll even take the train. You don't have to beat me down. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Audra. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University.
Simoncast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simoncast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.